listener production. I walked on and was just so relaxed. Something came over me. You don't have to prove anything. You're a winner for just doing this. And that thought just lit a fire. And the laughs I got that night was so intoxicating. It was such a vindication of my dream that I was so high, I floated out of that little venue thinking, I know what I want to do with my life. And you know what? I'm still chasing that high. To be honest. It is such a joy when you can make a group of people laugh at the same time. It is magic. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we're curious to get to know and understand. There might be tears as well as laughter as we celebrate the real-life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. Comedian Dave Hughes has been cracking us up for close to 30 years. Husey doesn't stop. He's on the radio, telly and is doing stand-up shows around the country. But what drives him to keep going? I wanted to ask Husey about the decision he made as a 21-year-old that changed the course of his life and what his family do to keep him real while he works in such an unreal industry. Husey. Yes, Jess. I love that I'm talking to you because I think you are one of the coolest guys in showbiz. That is a very a good compliment. We all just want to be cool. So. Well, you are. Like, you're the ultimate cool because you're funny. Yes. You've got good hair. Thank you. And you do so much. Yes, I do a lot. My wife thinks I do too much. Look, I just enjoy being busy. I enjoy being out and about. And I love, you know, mixing it up. So, yeah, I don't say no too much, Jess. I'm always available so I hope that's part of my charm. So yeah. Oh, but it is. But do you ever think you are too busy? Do you ever wish that you could say no more often? Yeah, look, I know, again, I know my wife wishes I would say no more often. But honestly, performing is a thrill for me, you know, especially getting on stage and doing stand-up comedy. That's something that I just love. And I, I equate it to people who love surfing, you know. when If you love surfing, you want to be out in the waves as much as possible. So Having an audience in front of me is my wave. So I just want to, I want to ride them till the sun sets, basically. <laughs> it's interesting that you use that wave analogy. I interviewed Keith Urban recently yeah. and he doesn't surf, but he spoke about when he's on stage, there are moments when he's sort of in the zone. Yeah. And he likens that to, he thinks, what big wave surfers must yes. feel like. Yeah. Look, I agree with Keith. I love Keith. He's a down-to-earth legend. And yeah, for me, being on stage has always been when I stay in the moment. You know, I've been doing stand-up comedy and, you know, radio and TV, but I started stand-up comedy in 1993. So that's almost 30 years. And there's never been a time in all those decades where I've been on stage and I've been thinking about something else. When you're on stage in front of an audience, they bring you to the moment. So 
I'm never worried on stage about anything other than where I'm at. Sometimes I'm worried about where I'm at there, but I'm never worried about the future or the past. See, that's phenomenal, I reckon. So it's almost like a narrowing. So are you saying there's never been a moment on stage where you've gone blank or you've had a moment of what's coming next or what am I saying next? No, I have had those moments of what I'm saying next, but I've never had the moment where I'm thinking about something that's in the future rather than the next minute or so. You know, I'm never thinking about something coming up the next day or the next week or I'm never thinking about something that happened the day before or the week before. So in that way, I am right there. I'm there and and I'm present, which is a wonderful thing. And it's how I want to live my whole life. I don't ever want to be worrying about anything. So, and yeah, stand-up comedy is something that naturally puts me in that place. And dare I say, it's almost like a meditation. Yes. Isn't it? Because that's about being in the moment. Yes. And being present. Absolutely, 100%. And I try to use it as my mantra when I go through my day, no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm brushing my teeth or walking down a corridor or being with my children, I try practicing just now, just be here now. Even though sometimes I know with my kids or just life generally, that I don't want to be right here yeah, right now. <laughs> don't you reckon? My wife's very good at being in the moment though and so she's someone who's able to sit on a beach on a, on a summer's day and make sandcastles with the kids for hours and I was always like, I just can't do that. But then I, I started to meditate more and I got to the point where I was able to make a sandcastle and enjoy that and enjoy the uh, frivolous nature of just making a sandcastle and not worrying about anything else. That's something that children do naturally. I think over time as we get older, we lose that ability just to play. Yes. Yeah. And to find, I think, the fun and the joy in that. Yes, absolutely. Where are you most joyful then? Well, again, it is on stage. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> And my wife's going, why don't you just stay home tonight? But I, look, I love being with my family. But yes, the stand-up comedy, I've also got an addictive personality. So because I've given up all other intoxicants, the stand-up comedy is my, it's my buzz, you know, it's my hit, my adrenaline rush. So it's something I do love. And during the pandemic, when it was taken away, we all had to stay home. I really miss that the most. I love my family time, but I did miss that stage time. I'm not going to lie. Well, how did you cope with that? What did you do? Look, luckily for me and some other comedians, we're able to do shows via Zoom. So you could do gigs to often like to companies who are looking for some way to entertain their their staff. So you would end up on a Zoom call with like, you know, maybe 150, 500, sometimes 1,000 people like watching you on the screen. So, and that was a way to get a taste of stand-up comedy, a more brutal way, though, I must say, because some people wouldn't realise that their cameras and their microphones were on and you would hear the inner workings of their mind. Oh. You know? and it's like it's like you're being heckled by their inner monologue, which they didn't realise was actually being broadcast. And I have to say, guys, can you shut down your microphone? I don't need to hear that you're bored. <laughs> Or I don't need to see you walking out of the room or exactly. making a cup of coffee. Yes, you or... might have 50 people on a screen, but they don't realise that you're seeing them as well, you know. And so you just want to just, just yell at them, just smile. I'm doing my best over here. Or sometimes when you're on Zoom calls and someone leaves the Zoom, you know, Jimmy has left the room. Jenny has left the room. And you're seeing a series of people leave the room as you're trying to entertain them. <laughs> and don't you reckon as well... 
even when you have a live audience, when you see people in front of you, do you actually focus on the ones who are most disinterested? Look, I can do that. But I tell you, and this is something I do say to other comedians, when I know I'm bulletproof in a gig is when I can look into the audience. And there's always people who, you know, for whatever reason, they're not laughing, they don't find you funny, or maybe they just don't externalise their joy. You know, maybe they're laughing internally. But when I can look out into a, a sea of people with most of them laughing, but I can see that person not laughing, staring back at me like they're having the worst day of their lives, when that person makes me laugh, I can't lose. <laughs> when you've got the attitude that you can look into the face of total failure, which is what someone not laughing is for me on stage. When I'm on stage and not laughing, that's me failing. When I can laugh at my own failure, I'm a winner, basically. And they're the most fun gigs. When you're not caring about the outcome, you're just enjoying being there. And it's freeing, isn't it? It's really freeing. Absolutely. To be able to laugh at your own failure is the most freeing thing that you can do. Well, that's what I do all the time with myself. I find it far more almost empowering. I'd rather own my failure. Yeah, and also people want to hear about your failures. No one wants to hear about your success. <laughs> <laughs> but it's what makes us human, isn't it? Yes. and I think Our that, vulnerability yeah, is what and, connects us. And I think a true friend is someone who, after you've had a terrible day, you can ring up and tell them about your failure and they will laugh along with you. And I am that friend for a lot of other comedians. Now, I want to pick up on something that you said earlier about your addictive personality. Yes. You decided to give up drinking. Yes, I did. Yes. Just before I started stand-up comedy, actually. So I'm coming up to my 30-year anniversary of being sober, actually, in I reckon maybe October or November this year. So yeah, 1992 was a big year for me. So, And I hadn't turned uh, 22 at the time. I was 21 still. I decided that was it for me and I haven't had a drink since. Well, congratulations. Thank you. That's extraordinary. And I think about myself at the age of 21. Yeah. I was carrying on like a pork chop, dancing on bars, all sorts of things, I wouldn't have had the self-awareness to think, do I need to make some changes here? Yeah. You did though. What was it that made you do that? Uh, it was, I'd been a, like a bad drunk from the age of probably 14 or 15. So not that I was, I wasn't drunk every day, but whenever I did drink, you know, as a teenager, I'd always get too drunk. I'd always obliterate myself and I was never a violent drunk. I mean, I used to get punched a lot because I was a smart ass and had no way to, <laughs> I wasn't very good at defending myself. So I was always out of control when I drank and um, I didn't like myself afterwards. People would say to me, you were funny last night, really funny, and I wouldn't be able to remember it. So that was there was no joy in that sort of a recollection because there was no recollection and it ended up really making me stressed and uh, I was depressed, there's no doubt about it. And I'd just dropped out of university because I wasn't able to focus. I was at a low point in my life, basically. And, um, you know, I come from a long line of drinkers, the old Irish heritage. So I'd seen the destructive nature of alcohol through family members. And, uh, you know, I just didn't want to go down that track, to be honest. So, and uh, yeah, so I just made a decision that that was it. And it was very quickly, I actually decided to give up till Christmas. And this was maybe in November. So maybe I had six weeks till Christmas to not drink. And in that six weeks, you know, I was 21 and I still went out and hung out with the lads basically. But in that six weeks, I'd had a good six weeks and I, I felt in control. So I actually got to Christmas Eve, which was a big drinking night in my community for young people. You always get obliterated on Christmas Eve. So you'd wake up hungover Christmas Day and, and start drinking again. But I thought, nah, 
if I start again, I'll just be like I was before. So that was the night. It was Christmas Eve, 1992, that the decision was made for me, by me, that I wasn't going to drink again. So, yeah, and here we are almost 30 years later. So were there any times in your life where you were tempted, where you thought either I'm feeling down? Because alcohol is such a part of our culture, yeah. which isn't necessarily a great thing. You know, people yeah, yeah. drink to celebrate, yeah, to commiserate, whatever. Yep. Were there moments when you either were tempted or thought, oh, Look, not really. I mean, I, I mean, I know the joy of drinking, you know. So drinkers know why they stop drinking. So, yeah, my wife, she will have a drink very occasionally, but she's got no idea that, you know, the power it can have over people. She's just, just not in her genes. And some people just don't, they don't have it in their genes and other people do. So she is someone who doesn't understand my world. But people who are real drinkers know that it, and I still have that temptation, but I just really accepted I wasn't going to do it again. So it really wasn't that hard. I've not had, in those 30 years, I haven't had any real moments where I go, oh, I'm going to start drinking again, which is yeah, it's just the way it is. So I just haven't. I mean, it was hard early on as in I moved to Perth and I didn't know anyone. I started playing footy at a footy club in Perth and like there I am and they're going, why aren't you drinking? You know, you're 22, why aren't you drinking with us? And I'm like, I just don't do it. So that was hard socially. Not hard amongst my own friends who accepted it really quickly and these are the guys I used to get drunk with all the time. And you'll be surprised if you're thinking about yourself how quickly your real friends accept what you do. So, yeah, so it wasn't hard amongst my school group who are still friends of mine to this day. But, yeah, when you're with strangers it can be tough because they don't understand that people just think you look at you weirdly because you're not drinking. People just go to you, my dad said never trust a man who doesn't drink. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Of course it is. Who do you want to drive you home, mate? You know, me or the guy who's blind. And who do you want to have long-lasting relationships and friendships with? People who are present and they're with you. And if you're pissed, you're not going to be that. Well, yeah. I'm not here to judge anyone else, though, and and any choices they make. But, I mean, if anyone is thinking about they would like to stop drinking and they only think that for a reason. People who don't have an issue don't think that. You know, (laughs) it's the ones who say, oh, I'm going to stop drinking for three months. They're the ones who go, all right, you feel like you might have an issue here. (laughs) These are the ones I'm talking to. Yes. You can continue that streak if you want to. Absolutely. And I suppose listening to that that voice or that inner voice that I am powerless over alcohol. Yeah, it, it was really is. Ta- it's taking the power back, and it, you know, if you if you go sober, you've got no one else to blame for your mood. You know, you are always you should always be in control of your mood, and and the way to do that is not not let you know intoxicants have that power. You make the decision yourself. You know, and a lot of people who see me out at night think that I might be drunk. I'm not, but I must look relaxed. <laughs> And I think as well, you strike me as someone who's very single-minded. Once you put your mind to something, you make it happen. Yeah, I mean, I yes, I have in my career, but I mean, I'm, I'm far from perfect though. I still spend so much of the day procrastinating and wasting time. Like I'm addicted to my phone as well. I don't know if we're all addicted to our phones, but. Oh, we, of course we are. Wow. I catch myself and I'm like, oh, no. Petey, my husband, will say, yes. what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, nothing. And I've just spent 40 minutes down I, the rabbit hole of TikTok. Exactly. Well, I haven't got into TikTok. I could not get any traction on TikTok. It's really disappointing. My 13-year-old son has like 15,000 followers and I've got about 200. So, 
He's like, he said to me, he said to me one day, Dad, I, with the right professional help, you could be big on TikTok. <laughs> I'm like, mate, I don't know if I could be, to be honest. I reckon you could. And don't you think, okay, you're you're a dad, you've got yeah. three kids. I think having children is a great leveller. Yes, 100%. There's no doubt about it. Uh, mine in particular take absolutely no interest in my career to the point that it's offensive, to be honest. So, <laughs> in what way? Well, the other night, like the Logies was a few weeks ago or whatever, and I, I, I presented the gold Logie and I worked on my little bit and it was four minutes and it went really well and it was at 11.30 at night and I and I got it on a video and I said to my son, do you want to watch Dad at the Logies? You know, you, you know, so he's presenting the gold Logie in front of, you know, all these peers and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on TV. I said, it's going to take four minutes. And he goes, not really. <laughs> I said, four minutes. I said, what's your level of interest out of 10? He said, three. <laughs> he still hasn't watched it. Oh, but that's kids for you. And wait yeah. till they become teenagers. My daughters are now 13 yeah. and 15 and I get the massive eye rolls all the time. My son is 13. The other day he had some mates over, including a couple of girls apparently, So, and he made me stay upstairs. I wasn't allowed to come downstairs. <laughs> I'm not the crazy guy in the attic. <laughs> There'll be more of that. You know what happens to me? I have to, not always, but with my daughters, they're like, Mum, you can't walk with us. And I'm like, but people know I'm your mum. No, no, you got to walk behind. So they're walking in front of me and I'm behind. But the problem is I then start to do stupid things. Yeah. Like I, I can't help but then... Yeah. Do a silly walk yes. or do something to you're, embarrass them. You're right. Don't you reckon? Basically, absolutely. My son went to a new school and he said, no one knows you're my dad and I like it that way. Right? So, <laughs> come on. <laughs> Got to give you some credit. No, so, but anyway, no, that's fair enough. Got to give you some kudos for that, I surely. I like to think for so. For being Exactly. Well, this is true. My daughter's got reports recently. I've got an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old daughter. And the, the lovely thing about the reports is their teacher said they are so kind to their classmates now, they are smart girls, but they always include other people's ideas and make other people feel good about themselves and their place in the classroom. I'm like, they could bring some of that home. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can't get higher praise for your kids. I love when I hear people say that. Yeah, all jokes aside, it is very, uh, it is very heartwarming to know that they're uh, kind to their classmates. Because, you know, if they're kind to their classmates, they should be kind to themselves, Yeah. So, yeah, we're all for kindness at home and as little judgment as possible. So, yeah, I think we're doing a good job, my wife especially. She's very attentive to the children and they're smiling their way through life, which is great. And I try to say just don't take life seriously. It's, you know, my son the other day, he's basketball, he said, I'm so worried about it. I said, mate, it's a joke. Don't worry about it. No one cares. My daughters both won um, their poetry competitions in their different sort of age groups. They had to read their poems out in front of a an assembly of people on a on a Thursday night or something. This is funny. I said to them, they were in the car on the way there. I couldn't go, but I was going to get the video. But they said, I said to them, look, just you remember, Dad has done thousands of performances in front of people and no one cares, right? My nine-year-old piped up. She said, you'll take every chance to brag, won't you, Dad? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you make it about you all the time. <laughs> Exactly. They they get me every time. (laughs) You talk a lot about your beautiful wife. Yes. And you've been together, is it 20 years? 20 years. 20 years. You just ticked past 20 years. It was in May. So, yes. 
We started going out in 2002. So just at a random meeting at a nightclub. She was there with some of her male friends. She'd recently become single. And uh, yeah, I was there with some of my mates. And uh, I remember, I still remember looking over the shoulder of one of her male friends thinking, who the hell is that? It's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my entire life. So yes, and here we are 20 years together. So yeah, it's lovely. Oh, it's wonderful, especially given, you know, partnerships take work, relationships yeah. take work, and there are times when it's harder than others. Yes. Okay, there's not a secret to a great relationship, but what have you found is important for you guys to make it work? Well, constant communication. So, yeah, look, I mean, I have, I mean, I, I travel a lot and have continued to travel a lot over that journey, but I ring her so many times a day to the point that she gets annoyed. So, yeah, oh, are so. you one of those? Because that's what Petey, my husband, does. I'm like, oh, no, why is he ringing? <laughs> like nothing's happened in the past two hours. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, um, I'm at the supermarket. Or then he'll ring a bit later. What are you doing? Uh, I'm in the car. Like what are you ringing? Yeah, or, but, or I'll ignore I'll ignore the phone. Yeah, no, she ignores the phone a lot. She's a full-time <laughs> school teacher as well. So I've, it's tough for me at the moment because I can only really ring during the day between 1 and 1.45. So, yeah, so I've like it's sometimes – You've got I'll, that window. Sometimes I'll try it and other times because you might have a free period or something. But, yeah, so, yeah, I, there's a lot of text messaging and, um, yeah, so I've got that 45-minute that window. But sometimes she's on yard duty and I'm like, come on, the kids are fine. Let them do what they like. I need some, <laughs> I need some me time. <laughs> Reassure me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So it's communication. Communication and, and keeping, you know, staying, not to get all graphic, but staying intimate. You've got to stay intimate. You know what I mean? So you've, and we are, we, yes, it's, it's, keep the intimacy, keep the physical intimacy. You know, I don't know what sort of podcast this is, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that can be tricky. I think when you're together with the same person for the long yes, period yes. of time, it can be a bit. Yeah. Mundane. Like I'd rather, dare I say, have a good night's sleep. Yeah, sometimes. no, I understand that. And my wife's, uh, she's probably with you a lot of the time. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, I do jokes about it. I remember she said, uh, you know, I, I bust a move, you know, and she goes, uh, do you know how hard I work? I said, I do. And that's why I want to reward you, honey. So, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there's, I've, I've included a lot of those lines that she's given to me uh, in the height of passion ends up in my stand up act. <laughs> The other, night, the other night we were like in the, I thought we were in the middle of what was a torrid, uh, you know, session and she goes, hmm, what should we get Sydney for his birthday? Who's our six-year-old nephew? I'm like, this is really not the time for that. I cannot believe you're thinking about presents for your nephew right now. I mean, this is just inappropriate. So, and then she knows I'll write it down. So, yeah. <laughs> but I think too that points to, I'll generalise, but as women, we do have a lot in our heads. Yes, yes the mental load. Yes, we have yes. a big mental load. I know, so it you, can know be where, you know hard. Where, where everyone has to be at certain times, you know, the, the schedules of all the children. And as a bloke, I just sort of float in and out going, you know, just ring you, where do they have to be? Like, and then we do have a calendar, which I should check more regularly. It actually sends alerts, and I've got to read those alerts as to who's got ballet, who's got basketball, who's got theatre practice. I mean, it's it's a heavy schedule our three children are on. Well, I think kids these days have massive schedules. I was nowhere near as busy oh, when I was their age. Absolutely. They do. And they're so 
dedicated, which is what I can't believe. I've got a nine-year-old who's happy to do a, like a four-hour theatre session on a Tuesday. Well, she's got to bring her own dinner. And like, Whoa! Yeah, you've got to make two-minute noodles and put in a flask <laughs> so she can have it at halftime of her theatre <laughs> training, like she's doing fame or something. So they are committed to their, what they're doing. So I've got to, you know, I've got to applaud that. Well, they've got an amazing role model in you. I mean, you're very committed to like what to you do. So. Well, I'd like to think so. I'd like them to acknowledge that they're somehow inspired by me, but they never seem to want to. But they are, you know, they do enjoy being on stage as well. My nine-year-old really loves being on stage. So, yes, they're good kids. They'll never hear this. They're good kids. I'm saying it anyway. Of <laughs> course, they're good kids. Talking about being on stage, have there ever been times when you've been scared? Yes, absolutely. I'm a, Many times. So probably the most frightened I ever was was before I did Hey Hey at Saturday, So, which they played. But they had a 50-year reunion of Hey Hey at Saturday, I think, last year, and they played one stand-up clip from that 50 years, and it was mine. It was my first time on the show, and I was so nervous. As a kid growing up in a country town, Hey Hey at Saturday was the TV show, and, you know, for me to end up walking out, not in Red Faces, I did audition for Red Faces twice, which if you don't know what that is, it's the amateur section where they gong you off after you make a fool of yourself. I auditioned to do that twice and they didn't want me. So apparently I wasn't ridiculous enough, apparently. So. Well, you were already a professional. Well, I was, but that's why I said to the guy in charge who wouldn't stop looking at his clipboard, I said, mate, I'm up here. <laughs> I actually got walked out by security at Channel 9. They walked me out because I don't know what they thought I was going to do because I was so angry at my audition that they they walked me to the gate and sort of saw me through the gate. But anyway, I ended up back on the show in a professional capacity and uh, Russell Gilbert, the great Russell Gilbert, helped me get on the show. So, But, yeah, I was so nervous. My legs were shaking as I'm doing my stand-up routine. But it went really well. So it was like, and, you know, the irony is the routine was about being on the dole which I was at the time. So I'd used my humiliation of being unemployed and the embarrassment of when you're at parties and people say, what do you do? And you've got nothing because you don't do anything. Or you'll say you're a comedian and they're like, really? And then you have to try to be funny because you've really got nothing to show for your comedian sort of claims. <laughs> like you've got no money or no status. So, But I used that time of being on the dole and I turned it into a comedy routine and, uh, you know, I was able to laugh at my own situation, which was, you know, dire, really. And, uh, and, and it became a very uh, well-liked comedy routine and ended up on TV and, uh, you know, it started my career, basically. Here he is, David Hughes. I've got a lot of time on my hands on because I'm on the dole, you know. It's sad, guys. It's hard being on the dole, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Not as hard as working, but it's still hard. <laughs> So you were scared doing that, and understandably because that's early on in your career. What about more recently? Have there been times when you put yourself out there and thought, oh, really, should I be doing this? Well, every time I do the Logies, to be honest, which I've already talked about, it went well the other week. When you walk out on the Logie stage and you're doing jokes and you're in front of your peers and you're like, if it doesn't go well, it's going to be so awkward. I don't want to be in that room. If, you know, people, I know people have to like look away from me. That's just embarrassing. And I've done the opening of the Logies a number of times, which is much better because you're at the start of the night. And you're always so good. Thank you, Jess. You are. I appreciate that. But, you you know, you're only as good as your next gig. So, and the other night though, I did the, I agreed to present the gold Logie, which is at the end of the night. 
So I get there at three o'clock in the afternoon for the red carpet, as you'd know, and it's a really long night. So between 3 p.m. and when I got on stage is at 11.30 p.m., that's eight and a half that's, hours. And so are you getting more nervous? Because what happens when I get nervous? I have to yeah. go to the bathroom no, I that, a lot. Absolutely. Does that happen to you? Yeah, I definitely, I, I sometimes you do gigs where there's no toilet backstage. So, and I'm like, I, I don't want to walk <laughs> through the crowd before a gig. I did a venue race, there was no toilet backstage, and I every night I would ask for a cup from the Oh, from the no. Bar. And they're like, why do you need a cup every night? I said, there's no need to know. So before the show, I'm like filling the cup up, not with poo, no. <laughs> with wee. And then after the show, I've got to walk out of the venue and there's people milling around wanting photos and I've got a steaming cup oh, of piss no. in my head. <laughs> and I have to go, yes, I'll get a photo, but let's just leave this arm oh, out here. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm uh, yeah, definitely nervous before the locals. That's an eight, eight and a half hours of pacing, though. So, And, and you're I, a pacer, aren't you? You I'm a pace pacer. before I'm a, you, pacer. a performance. Absolutely. So uh, because I was doing jokes at the end of the show, I didn't want it to repeat any jokes from any other presenters. So I had to watch every second, basically. <laughs> the only thing I didn't watch was the um, Hall of Fame because I knew that it was Bruce McAvaney and I thought there's probably no jokes he'll do that would, you know, so I'm backstage just before going on and then the people, the producers are back there and they said, I said, look, I've watched it all except for the Hall of Fame and one guy said, that's what I wrote. I'm oh, like, oh, for no. God's sake, mate, I'll watch it on tape. I've got to do my own thing. I'm, I'm sorry about your feelings right now. Anyway, but again, nothing matters. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. You say it doesn't matter, but it does because you keep, Doing it. You love being on stage. I love the thrill of it. I do. I love the I love the thrill. I love the anticipation. I love the challenge. Even though I know I really deeply in my heart know it doesn't matter at the end of the day. But I love the challenge of of winning an audience over or making them laugh. Yeah, I really do. And I'll, I'll love it to my dying day, there's no doubt. So describe then for me what that is like, what that feeling is for you standing on stage? Well, I suppose the first big laugh I ever got on stage was I was three gigs in back in 1993 and my first gig was horrendous. No one laughed at all. I was so embarrassed because I dropped out of uni and I, I wanted to be a comedian. I dreamed of it secretly since I was probably 13. I remember failing my last uni exam doing a business degree and I'm, they had no idea what any of the questions meant. So and I'm, I'm sitting there in this failing exam, thinking I want to be a comedian anyway, it doesn't matter. So then I get on stage probably six months later and no one laughs at all. So I'm on stage thinking I'm a loser, I'm deluded, I've thrown my life away, I'm never going to have any money. So that's a terrible attitude to have when you're trying to make people laugh. So, So no one laughed at all. I remember I'm walking, I had to walk through the crowd to get out of that venue and as I'm walking out, I talked about being teased at school. That's was my, what my act was about and, and no one had laughed at it. But as I walked out, some someone from the audience said, they were right to tease you. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> and so I actually, apparently I Rove uh, was there. I was in WA. Rove was there. He hadn't started stand-up comedy at that point, but apparently that act inspired him. Because apparently he thought, and he told me this, he thought if that guy's allowed to be on stage, well, anyone can get on stage. <laughs> <laughs> There's hope for me. So I inspired his career <laughs> with my fantastic failure. I went back the next week to the same venue because I thought if I don't walk on stage as quickly as possible, I will never do it again. 
So I, I went back the next week and kept my dignity. I didn't get big laughs, but I kept my temperament. So I walked off feeling okay. But it was a few months later, I'd had a few months break because it was so stressful to even contemplate doing it. But a few months later, there was an ad in the paper. It said, comedians required. I answered the ad, had no idea it was the same venue I'd been to. Guy who answered the phone call said, I remember you. You weren't that bad. You should give it another go. And because he said that, maybe that's what said, all right, I'm going to do it. Third time on stage, I walked on and was just so relaxed. Something came over me. You don't have to prove anything. You're a winner for just doing this. And that thought just lit a fire. And the laughs I got that night was so intoxicating. It was such a vindication of my dream that I was so high, I floated out of that little venue thinking, I know what I want to do with my life. And you know what? I'm still chasing that high. <laughs> it is such a joy when you can make a group of people laugh at the same time. It is magic. And I can see the magic because when you describe that, your face it's, it's, becomes alive. Yes. It's just, it's like you, something you said has made all these people have a physical noise. And you know, I know how much fun it is to laugh. So to make other people laugh is so satisfying for me because I'm, for that brief moment, I'm making people happy. And you can't ask for more than that, I think, in life. I wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> and for you, you say you want to be doing comedy until yes, your until, dying days. Yeah, absolutely. So will you be 90 and on stage? Is yeah, that how- yeah, I'll be on stage. I might be in a nursing home. Um, I might be doing, you know, the same act to people who heard it the day before but can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll be doing all I can to uh, continue doing it So because I, I just bloody love it. Well, we're so lucky to have you because you do make us laugh and you make us feel better. So thank you for being you, Husey. Thank you, Jess. I appreciate your time. Oh, Husey, isn't there just something about that wonderful, laconic voice? And I tell you, listeners, if you could see the grin and the sparkle in his eyes when he spoke about doing stand-up, you can see how that is when he feels most alive. And if you haven't had a chance to catch Husey live on stage, for our Melbourne listeners, he's performing a special encore performance of his comedy festival hit, Ridiculous, on Saturday, August 6. And for everyone else, search for Husey, Erin and Ed on the Listener app for his daily brekkie show. And for more big conversations like this, follow the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show podcast so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this episode with Husey, I reckon you'll like my chat with Nazim Hussain. You know deep down what you like and what makes you happy. We're instructed to think of others in the same way. Bringing happiness to other people fulfills me too. So that's a really nice thing that I take from my religion, that serving others serves yourself. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter.